Well, good morning. So I spoke here about two weeks ago, and um, since that time, I haven't gone home. <laughs> I've stayed here, not literally in this hall, but I've stayed at Spirit Rock and um, have been on retreat for two weeks. And I'm coming, actually walked down from the retreat area this morning. And this represents probably cumulatively my most, definitely my most talking of the last two weeks. And so I, I'm presuming it will work. <laughs> um, We will know by the end of the, the talk <laughs> whether it has. So, uh, so I was on retreat in two weeks, meaning pretty much in silence for two weeks. And I wanted to uh, share some of uh, what I've explored and learned from that retreat, both uh, in terms of some of my own personal explorations, but I want to frame those areas of exploration in terms of themes which are very crucial for all of our practices, which are very crucial for uh, our own ongoing uh, practice at home, in everyday life, and so forth. So not particularly themes that are just restricted to retreat. I thought I'd begin, though, with a few poems, um, because I had the idea. I wanted to uh, write some poems for you. And so um, yesterday afternoon, I sat down and said, poems, if you want to arrive, now is the time. (laughs) (laughs) Three pieces of paper. (laughs) So I thought I'll read, uh, I think I'll read uh, parts of uh, two passages now. Maybe another one later. <clears throat> this can give you a little bit of the flavor of being on retreat for two weeks, of course, many of you have been on retreat. <clears throat> so these poems don't have, <clears throat> don't have uh, titles or names as of now. The forest, the sky the stillness, the earth. Hold my days with the tenderness of patience. To enter mystery, ancient and now. To disclose subtle beauties, to feel stuckness many layers deep, to be available ever so slowly in a moment for seeing, for feeling. Attention must continue, sometimes beyond ease and comfort. Here's a... This is more of a a unified poem. 
such a tender organism, meaning us, such a tender organism, no shell, the heart right there for another to love or to hurt or both. Not surprising that protection is important for survival and a thousand layer shell of infinite complexity outdoes the great tortoise or stegosaurus. (laughs) And so we come of age and meet the world with our shells of mind and heart becoming body so thick. Time for a retreat. Let's see how many layers come off each retreat. It may take a while. But the speechless presence and brilliance that lies deeper than tenderness dissolves the layers, the shell no more. What was deep inside, unchanged, but now known, now teaching me how to live without a shell and survive and move far beyond survival, the mysterious protection of the great presence. I was thinking of this talk uh, partly in the context of uh, a number of ancient traditions in which uh, a person returns to a community after having been away. You know, in indigenous traditions, the shaman goes off for a while and comes back with a song, which is where (coughs) poems come from. Poems were originally sung, I think. Or more recently, until, until a little while ago, people would take vacations and they'd come back and they'd have slideshows for their, for their friends and neighbors and be the subject of a lot of jokes. Now we have people posting photographs on the web with no human interaction, <laughs> happily for some. So, <laughs> so I was thinking of, uh, of this in that way. This is, I think it's healthy, you know, when any of us go away or go on a great uh, uh, adventure or, or go deeply or go through something that's challenging. I think it's important for us to report back to our communities. It's both for the sake of the community members, but also for our own sake. There's something that gets uh, uh, connected. There's some kind of circle that's uh, formed. So I thought that I'd say a little bit about the retreat in general. Uh, and I'm wondering how many of you have done a retreat at, at Spirit Rock? That's about, about half of us. How many have not done a retreat? Yeah. So this may be a 
partly advertisement for retreat. <coughs> so, <coughs> you know, retreat in certain ways is a wonderful chance to move away from the habitual. It's to move away from our routines. A lot of what's really crucial and that I and almost everyone finds is that when particularly living in this uh, culture, uh, we find ourselves so busy. And being on retreat, one of the delights is that uh, the busyness just comes to an end, at least externally, and eventually internally. <laughs> you know, and it, so one of the uh, insights that I always have on retreat is <clears throat> I would like to be less busy. And simpler in my way of life. Something, and so it's really related to what one finds often on retreat. I think in meditation generally, is that we come we come back to what's important. That it's very easy for what's most important in our lives to get covered over by the almost like the dust of everyday life. It covers over things. And we forget what's important to us because we have to do this or do that. Or uh, And retreats are wonderful for helping to remind what, oneself of what's important. They help, they give a kind of a focus. You know, in the practices that we do, we develop in awareness, the open heart, the, the settled mind. <clears throat> and we get training and guidance and support, tremendous support for... It would be very hard for probably most of us to do a retreat like we do there on one's own at home or something like that. So for me, I was part of the two-month retreat, which is a privilege to be with a lot of the most dedicated uh, practitioners. And uh, I was have just been there for two weeks. I pretty much uh, just stayed in my room. Um, Typically, when one goes to a retreat, one stays in the hall, does sitting and walking practice. But I have been increasingly, I'm not recommending this the first time, certainly, or for a long time, but I've been finding it very helpful to just actually have more of an inner practice that lets me stay with the rhythms. If I want to stay meditating for two hours, I do that, or, or follow rhythms. So I've, the last retreats have basically been sitting in uh, my room all the time, not even going into the hall at all, and not going to the evening talks. Kind of like being in a cave with an individual thermostat and gourmet meals three times a day. <laughs> I was thinking, thinking of that. It was, you know, it's a lot like being in a cave, just totally with my own presence, and which... Uh, again, it's one of the challenges of retreat, just to be with one's own mind repeatedly for <clears throat> for a week or for two weeks or whatever. And actually, it's interesting that uh, in Asian tradition, mostly the way that people practiced retreats was to be on one's own, often in a community. But to uh, <clears throat> in Thailand one would typically meditate 
in, the, in one's cottage or uh, walking in the forest. <clears throat> in India or Tibet, people would typically practice on their own. The tradition of people uh, meditating together in halls comes from China. And it's not the way, it's actually not how it was with, at the time of the Buddha. People would come together to hear talks, but when one was doing a lot of meditation practice, typically one would be on one's own. You know, and then one you know, might come back, you might come back and talk with a teacher every, a week, every week, or in, in Tibet they would send people off, uh, uh, send people off and say, come back in a year and let me know what you found. You know, kind of interesting. And I, one, of the, one of my joys on this retreat that I was be reading a life of a, a great meditator from the, uh, mostly from the early 19th century named Shabkar. This is a book called The Life of Shabkar, who was a Tibetan practitioner. And I would read this as a sort of friend and uh, accompany, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, someone who would accompany me on this, on this journey, which is very much on my own, those I would read. This is partly in response to Marty's question. I would read passages at the beginning of a session to inspire me or energize me, and they would work that way. Or read certain passages. Um, so, the practices that I did were threefold. Primarily, I did um, concentration practice, primarily focusing on the breath, which I did the first four days exclusively just to have my mind settled to a certain extent. And then did periodically, uh, maybe about a quarter of the time for the rest of the retreat after the first four days. And then I also worked with heart practices like loving kindness and uh, wishing well for others, which I did both in my room and I especially did it in the dining hall. I would just be there in the dining hall going one by one, person after person, and wishing well for them. It was a beautiful practice. It's something that we can do. You know, we can, loving kindness practice can really be done out in the world. You, know, you can do it. A lot of people I work with do it driving. You know, they, you know, you have to, you know, make sure you have the basic safety mechanisms down. But once you have that, people just bring the loving kindness, wishing the inhabitant of a car, or you can do it in a, on public transportation or at a meeting. And it's a wonderful practice. It's, it's, it's actually a training, and you can, uh, one can actually do it in a practical space and still be pretty functional. But here, this was, that was a main practice for me. So I would do it maybe three or four hours a day. I'd be doing, I don't know if that much, maybe three hours a day, be doing loving kindness and other heart practices, which quite quite wonderful and, and um, very moving. And then I would do practices which cultivated a kind of open awareness. I would do that maybe about half the time, which would have just this open awareness of being present with whatever was there and going into an increasingly open and unstructured and, and, and a wordless awareness quite often. And so that was, that was, that was my, that was, those were my two weeks doing those practices, you know, all of which, you know, we, we really need. There was a beautiful way they mixed together because in a way those are our, those are our core practices here. We need to do a certain amount of concentration to stabilize attention. And then we also work to develop the heart in various ways. Loving kindness, a main practice, compassion in others. And then we cultivate mindfulness and, and, and open awareness 
So this is really a blending and they blend on a retreat, they blend together beautifully and they inform each other. So the awareness has the quality of the awakened heart and the concentration is really important to bring one to, to a deeper level. Maybe just a few other things about the retreat. Um, some of you knew my father who died about six years ago because he came to this class quite often. For those of you who uh, came in the, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago would meet him here, you know, often with my mother. He died about six years ago and we have a bench that's actually right out here, right out behind this hall. And I would come down every um, evening after supper and I'd sit on the bench and I would talk to, I'd talk to my father. And I know there are a lot of psychotherapists in the group, so, but it's okay. <laughs> I would talk to my father and I think it's partly just paying homage and connecting. It's quite, quite beautiful, but it's a beautiful ritual when I'm on retreat. I do it every day after supper. Even if it's raining, I go down there and I would talk with him. And mostly he gives me guidance on retreat, which is kind of, he usually gives me these one or two liners, like one of them from like, I think maybe yesterday or the day before. He'd just, just be like, stay with the fullness. So, oh yeah, he gives me things I wouldn't think of myself, you know. Who, who knows what's going on when we talk together? I don't know. I don't purport to know. But anyway, that's a part of my retreat. So it's kind of like a devotional quality, almost like, and it's quite um, very meaningful. And like I say, things come through that dialogue that I wouldn't get otherwise. And a lot of, a lot of guidance in the form of one or two liners that stay with me for, for a while. And the other thing that just I thought I'd mention, it's kind of interesting, is for me at least, the, my dream process is a little different on retreat. And I, you know, what I was generally experiencing, I mean, there were some very interesting dreams, but I won't, I won't so much talk about those, but um, for a, most of the retreat, I would wake up at the end of every dream cycle. And I typically, um, I often would write down my dreams if they seemed significant, or even if they were borderline possibly significant. And, uh, and then I go right back to sleep. And I do this a lot. One evening, I woke up and wrote down 10 dreams. You know, it was quite interesting to see, to see that process happening, which I've experienced before, not quite to that extent. There was something about the, the level of concentration the mind permits waking up and then just going right back to sleep. There was nothing happening with my mind. No, no activity. And it was very interesting to just have the dreams come. And some of them were interesting. You know, I had a lot of, I remember, I had a, uh, yeah, one, one evening, the time I remembered 10, there were, I had dialogues. I remember I had long discussions. I remember I had a long discussion with Cornell West. I don't know if anyone knows him. <laughs> and we were talking about love. <laughs> it's very nice. You know, and I remember another, uh, that evening was particularly seemed to be connected with the African-Americans. I, I heard Angela Davis give a long talk about, particularly focused on criticizing anti-Semitism, you know, as it was emerging in the political campaign. I mean, that's what happens on retreat or, or you know, or another, another talk, I, I forget who this was, but someone gave a quite extended talk on gender issues. You know, that was kind of my social, political, mixed with love evening. 
Anyway, so just to give a flavor, so there's, there's that aspect of mystery. You know, and, and a lot of times, you know, which sometimes, again, our daily life gets busy, we forget a sense of mystery. We forget a sense of just how mysterious it is to be aware, to have objects here, to have an individual life, kind of almost like a, sometimes a sense of life purpose. And what is this? You know, what is, what are, what is this all about? You know, and that sense in, on retreat or when we slow down sometimes, we can tap into the mystery. And it's a beautiful practice just to invite a sense of mystery during a sitting. And just say, let me open to the mysterious. And we not, maybe not so self-preoccupied with the, with the meditation. I found it connected also with developing a sense of humility at times. Um, so I mentioned that, that there was uh, what comes out of our practice and can really come in a deepened way out of retreats is, is, is further clarity about what matters. You know, and I would do reflections that I've shared here at times, reflecting about um, um, what's important, about impermanence, about death. These are classical reflections that one does in many traditions <coughs> where one remembers, one remembers the reality of death and the fact that one will die, not to become uh, somber or morose or depressed, but really to... Um, really ask, am I living how I want to live? In the context of uh, a retreat, it was to, re- it, it, it served to support a sense of fullness. And we can use that in daily life as well. It's a very, tra- just to reflect for five minutes about the preciousness of life and the fact that things are changing, that we don't know how long we will live and what's important to me. Just to reflect on that at the beginning of a sitting can give, give energy. I thought I would read something from this uh, book of Shabkar, where he, he does that. This is one, um, one day he was meditating in the mountains. He had a very picturesque place for a lot of years. He meditated at a place called Songying Island in Lake Kokonor, which is in northeast Tibet. And it's an island in the middle of a big lake in the mountains. And he meditated there. There were other people on the island also meditating. They were a little community, but they mostly were on their own. Anyway, this is what he wrote. And he, he um, wrote songs and sang songs. And he would teach and he would sing songs, which I think, again, is very much like poetry. This is one of his songs. This is, again, again trans- in the translation. His name was uh, Sogdrok Rangchol. That distant mountain peak has now been covered in white snow. Hey there, Sokdruk Rendall, look at the hair on your old gray head. <laughs> the blue gentian blossomed, it now has withered. Hey there, Sokdruk Rendall, look at your own face. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I think the tone is, I'm bringing in the tone there. <laughs> The waterfowl, one by one, have left. Now the shores of the lake are deserted. Hey there, Satra Grandal. Look what's happened to your friends. Meaning they've left. What was once a rising sun is already setting behind the mountain. Hey there, Satra Grandal. Look how old you've grown. 
And after he, he says that, he said, having sung this, I persevered in my practice. So another theme that I wanted to bring out was uh, was that one one of the um, benefits of retreat or really staying with our practice over time is that we have a sense that this is a long process. And we're really the horizon that we're looking at involves opening to our own depths of wisdom and compassion and love and skillful action. As a New Yorker cartoon showed with two monks sitting, one of them says to the other, I hear this may take a while. I've packed a lunch. <laughs> and so there is, there is that sense, again, furthered on retreat, that this is a process, that especially when one does many retreats, for anyone who's done this for a lot of years, there are ups and downs, you know, and we learn not to be quite so taken by this or that happening or this or that mind state or heart state. You know, we learn to have a, a sense of the long view or the long haul, a sense of uh, equanimity that we're really here for, for a while. And we, we don't necessarily treat um, everything in terms of is this good or is this bad in our life. We're also in that sense open to mystery. Some of you know this uh, beautiful poem by, by Rumi, I think, The Guest House, which is appropriate there, where he says, this being human is a guest house, every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, a momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if there are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house, empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. That guest may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Some of that opening uh, is an opening to what I think is emphasized very much in Buddhist traditions, really, I think, in all traditions, but especially in Buddhist tradition, we've, we emphasize a lot the cultivation of awareness. And there's a sense in which we develop mindfulness and awareness, we see into parts of our being that were covered over before or that were unconscious. Very much our practice is a way of developing awareness more and more. It's really why we practice. We want to be aware of our habits, of our patterns, of, <coughs> of um, maybe what's ruled us in the past, our tendencies, whether it's our own individual mind or how we are with others. And this beautiful practice of mindfulness lets us really study our own presence by our own experience, by developing a quality of awareness. And we actually develop that further and further. 
the awareness can get very powerful and penetrating. And there's a way in which, in, in certain ways, it seems that this quality of awareness is, is ultimately connected with a deep wisdom and love that may even go beyond our own individual being. That when we tap into awareness sufficiently with enough depth, it's not even just individual awareness. We can meet an awareness that's very big and very broad and that permits the depths of uh, connection or love or seeing into uh, nature or seeing into our own, own mind. So there's that aspect of, of a mystery th- that's an important part of our practice and very much this mystery of awareness is something that occurs on retreat, particularly the awareness when the mind has quieted. When the normal habitual mind is quieted, there's an opening to something that wasn't usually known before. I remember that's what I, many of my retreats opened up vistas that had been unimaginable prior to the retreats. Whether it's at the level of uh, self-knowledge or at the level of uh, understanding more of the universal aspects of uh, humans. That there were vi- there have been vistas opened up which were unimaginable and that just keeps happening. It just keeps happening. And one of the interesting themes which I focused on some in the retreat, particularly uh, a few days ago for about a day or two, was really a big theme in practice. It's something I mentioned at the beginning of the sitting. It's the, the, we could call it a balance between doing and being. Part of our practice is a, involves a doing, involves some effort. It involves some effort to be aware, to be mindful, to be present, to show up just to have a daily sitting, right? Take some discipline, some doing, arranging of one's schedule, and so forth. And in doing mindfulness practice, just to keep coming back to the breath or to keep attending to what's there. Sometimes the mind is lazy, doesn't want to go there. So there's a certain amount of what we might call proactive doing, which is very central in practice and has to be developed, a certain kind of discipline and so forth. And there's also, we might say on the other side, um, there has to be a quality of resting and relaxation and ease And this has been an important theme for me, probably like many of you, many of us, I think very much in this culture, we are probably a culture of doers. Anyone relate to that? You know, I I often joke that um, if we really were honest, many of us would rather complete our to-do list than reach enlightenment. Is that true of anyone? <laughs> Isn't that important? Isn't that anyone have a to-do list? I, I was once, maybe I'll bring this in sometime, I don't know. Some of you know I, I had clown training with the uh, um, Clown School of San Francisco and we, we, I was part of a troupe and we put on performances and one of my fellow members of the troupe, she did a whole like 45 minute sequence about her to-do list. 
It was called Madam's Busy Morning. <laughs> and anyway, but I was just reflecting on that. So we, we in this culture are doers, and it shows up in the meditation. And it's something to work with. So I was, I was exploring uh, how to just open up and relax yet more, yet another layer. You know, sometimes when I would, I would notice there was like what I called a, a kind of uh, a, the nervous doer would try to help awareness along, which is humorous, right? But it's like, okay, hey, get your awareness. Okay, here, let me help. Okay, let me, let me help just by pushing or straining a little bit, you know? And, uh, you know, saying it like that, it's humorous, but that kind of doer is deep in our psyches. I think we probably know that, you know, because it's, it's that how easy is it just to open up and let go. So again, a theme which we can look at in our daily practice, that balance of doing and being, or uh, we might call it effort and ease. How do we, how do we work with that? I think it's also related to two themes of practice, one of which is that with our more active dimensions of practice, we become mindful, we do loving-kindness practice, we develop concentration, we stabilize, we have a regular practice, we cultivate certain qualities, we develop in greater equanimity and mindfulness and open heart and so forth. And so these are very real tendencies. We can see those happening. We could say there's an aspect of meditation which is linear, which occurs over time. You do certain things, there are results. And so it's, it's kind of an important, we might say, half of practice. It's related to that quality of the alertness, the doing, and so forth. And there's this, also this aspect of practice which is nonlinear, which is that opening to mystery, and it's opening to awareness, which is, in a sense, out of time that when we're just aware, there's with what was called in ancient India, the eternal now that we're with. Can you feel that eternal now, right now? It's easy to miss, isn't it? And one of the aims of practice is really to tune into that and have that be a greater presence in one's life. And ultimately, these two dimensions become integrated so that one can actually, we might say, have one's doing come out of being. That one can act fully in the world and have it come out of a deep uh, presence. That the linear and the nonlinear can be, in a way, uh, integrated and, and connected. And then when we go more into the nonlinear, it does almost go beyond words. We go into further depths of awareness. And in a way, it's characterized by, by uh, going often beyond the bounds of language. When we open to this strong sense of presence in the now, what words are there? I remember reading a story of a, uh, of a great teacher, I think this is a Tibetan teacher, who said many of his, the great teachers that he met, they had nothing to say. They would just say, hey, this is it. 
you know, or, hey, look. <laughs> That's all they would do. They were not, they were not highly verbal. <laughs> but they had deep uh, wellsprings of, uh, of um, love and compassion. And I thought of um, a poem that I, I remember from uh, a poet and filmmaker named James Broughton. Some of you, I think, lived around here. Uh, I think he died about 15 years ago. But he wrote this poem. It was made into a film, which um, you can, I think, find on YouTube. There, I've, every Dharma talk nowadays should have at least one internet reference. <laughs> so, uh, so this is James Broughton talking about this inexpressible now. This is it. And I am it. And you are it. And so is that. And he is it. And she is it. And it is it. And that is that. Oh, it is this. And it is thus. And it is them. And it is us. And it is now. And here it is. And here we are. So this is it. So it does go into a certain um, uh, exploration of awareness that's really uh, potentially beyond words. We find this talked about in so many traditions. There, you see, there are passages from the Buddha where he talks about the, the, the depths of awareness in this way, where consciousness is signless, boundless, all luminous. They're both long and short, small and great, fair and foul, name and form, are wholly destroyed beyond concepts and language, a kind of awareness that, that um, is really, in a sense, beyond the individual self. In the Thai tradition, it's talked about <clears throat> as um, sometimes as pure awareness or uh, Mahasati, the great mindfulness by a Chan Jumnian who, who used to come here every year. Maybe I'll, I'll just end with um, <clears throat> a line that, that, um, that I got from uh, an ancient text uh, which is about this quality of awareness. And this is from... Uh, um, also a Tibetan teacher named Dagpo Tashi Namgyal. And this is something that I've, I think I've shared with you, but it's something that I use a lot to invoke this deep quality of awareness in my own mind. And these are just a few lines which um, during the retreat I would, off, I would utter internally to myself many times a day. Sometimes when I would do walking meditation, I would do it every five minutes or every ten minutes. Open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, lucid like a crystal. I'll just end with the first lines of the poem that I read earlier.
the forest, the sky, the stillness, the earth, hold my days with the tenderness of patience. I'd like to invite, if you wish, any reflections or questions or comments. And maybe we should use this microphone. Could we use that? That would actually, I think, put it on the recording. Donald, could you just give us the name of that poet, James, his last name? Yes. The request was for to give the name of the poet, uh, James... Broughton, B-R-O-U-G-H-T-O-N. And he made a film in which he, in which that poem is repeated. It's about, a, I think, about a nine or ten minute film, and it is on YouTube. And it's quite, it's quite wonderful. How are we doing with... I think this... No, it's not on yet. Yes? Yes. Thank you. Yes, yeah, so let's use that for any remaining comments or questions. I'm curious about um, how the passage of time is for you at a retreat and if that's changed since uh, you've been doing more retreats because that's something that kind of scares me um, in looking at taking a retreat is to be just like, I want to say bored, but I don't really mean bored. So uh, so it's a question of um, how is the passage of time for me, do you mean like questions, do I get bored? You know, is it just staying and being, meditating all day long? Does that get uh, boring or hard or? Yeah, or are you like, oh, it's only 10 o'clock. It's only 10. <laughs> <laughs> it's, only, it's only 10 o'clock. Do you know where your mind is? Uh, uh, it's ten. It's ten a.m. Uh, and it's ten a.m. and you've got another twelve hours of this. And um, well, uh, there's a. It's a process, and I think it's um, in in beginning retreats. In my first retreats, uh, I think it was more of an issue because it was the unknown. When you get familiar with it, uh, I personally have done a lot of retreats and have almost never been bored. That's my personal experience. It's not universal. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, there, you know, there are other issues that come up. But the, mostly you get, one gets used to it and you stay with it. And it's actually, for me, it's the most fascinating experience I've ever had in my life. And it's actually, if I would be honest and look, I get much more bored in daily life, but it's just we have the stimulus, you know? Oh, and we, we don't even think about it. It's kind of like unconsciously the thought is, you know, I need some more stimulation. Let's turn on this or listen to this or go to the refrigerator or do this or do that or, you know, check my email or whatever. 
And so, um, actually, actually, what one um, finds is that uh, boredom actually is a thought. It's related. I mean, it can be related to a bodily experience, but it's actually, it's actually a thought that occurs, which is basically saying, um, "This is not adequate for me. I want something. I want something else." So, but. In mostly that and other details get get worked out in the retreat, and it can the first retreat or two can be hard at times. You know, for me, my first retreat wasn't hard for that reason. It was I thought I would I thought I'd run out of energy, and so I was kind of nervous about the fact of being attentive all day long seemed like too much for me, and so every free moment I took naps. It was kind of. Um, it's kind of silly, but it's what happened, you know. So I was I was nervous. I'm not going to last the whole day, you know. And so I took naps, and then you know, after a few days, I th- thought that was unnecessary, and it was okay. For other people, you know, you know, boredom boredom does come up, but harder probably are you know what sometimes what comes up are parts of our experience or our minds that we may not have wanted to look at. That might that might be harder, but I'll just say for myself in terms of the passage of time and the, my experience of it, it's um, it's um, can be quite uh, quite beautiful and blissful to not be in the kind of ordinary time that we're freak, so frequently in in daily life, and there can be insight. And there can be there can be a sense of that eternal now, and there can it's just because it's and then we experience that in meditation. I'm sure it's just that sense of let me just be present moment after moment, and so there is a different sense of time. It is more um, continually coming out of, into the present moment, uh, even even as there is, you know, there is a role for relating to future and past. Does that does it get at it some? Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, there's a lot more that could be said about time. It's really um, a great topic, but maybe another time. <laughs> we could have a good time. Okay. I almost had a teacher who made all the, all these different jokes about time. I was just channeling him. <laughs> Other reflections or questions or so one here and then one here. Um, your um, your comment about um, retreat being um, a move from the habitual um, was interesting to me because I've had a pretty tough couple three months yeah and one of the things that has actually been more settling for me was to put certain things in my schedule that I did not need to think about one of those is like coming here it's like oh Wednesday morning I go here Um, which is which is sort of using the habitual right to be settling and helpful. So that that was just interesting to me yeah so good good question about the the kind of the role of the, of the habitual, yeah. I think it actually brings out that I, I was not fully explicit. I, you know, I was more referring to to bad habits. 
And uh, uh, good habits or structure in our life can be tremendously supportive and very, very helpful in exactly the ways you're, you're talking about. So, um, but even, even so, there's some, and, and of course, retreat itself has its habitual structures after a while, the same pattern, which is you know, often tremendously reassuring. You know, and, and to the, the ease of structure means, again, we don't, like you say, we don't have to make decisions, which frees up uh, awareness just to look, which is very helpful. So, uh, but, but it was really more about the way that it uh, takes us, uh, retreat can take us away from uh, a lot of patterns which have us excessively busy or not, or not always so helpful or um, have us, when we're bringing awareness, have us not just uh, take all of our habits for granted. So ultimately we want to distinguish between what are good habits and bad habits. Something like that. Yeah. And please. I just wanted to say that I really... Um, oh. That I really connected with the no words in your talk, in the level of no words, that when you gave this uh, permission, I just, I let go of what you said, and I j- it just felt that it, that it came from the heart, and I could feel the two weeks, you know, it was yeah. more on the feeling level. Yeah. So... I really appreciated that it was it was a different connection to the whole yeah. experience. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was um, you know I, I try when I come from home try to bring my best wisdom and awareness and compassion, but it's different coming from retreat down here. Mm-hmm. You know, literally, you know, literally I came right down here. <laughs> you know, and this is the most. I've been involved with talking since I was last here. Yeah. Is there anyone else? We have time maybe for one or two more. Uh, Marty, please. Um, I just wanted to say that this actually comes from... uh, two or three weeks ago when you spoke about ways in which we could deepen practice. And um, what, I've ex- what I experienced, because the practice that I took on was, was stopping or in the midst of the flow of my day, um, saying different <coughs> aspirations and connecting with just by by using those words and the words that I started with were the ones that the open is the sky pervasive is the earth (coughs) Uh, and it has made a tremendous difference in my just ongoing presence to practice during my day to day life yeah Yeah, so those ways that words can invite us to remind me of in in on the side, remind me of your name again? Daphna. Daphna. Um, when she was talking about this quality of beyond words, that it's possible, even in the midst of a busy life, daily life, to find ways to invoke, as Marty is suggesting, that quality of just the mind stopping and being with mystery, we might say. And to have ways of doing that 
it just can be for a minute, five or ten times a day changes things. You know, there are different techniques. You can use words, like, like the, these words, uh, do it for me, like as from Marty, this open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, uh, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, lucid like a crystal. When I hear that, something just stops, you know? Or you could, you, there may be a poem that does that for you. Or sometimes it's, you know, sometimes a technique used in some traditions is to do something like, did you notice something for a split second? <laughs> you know, and you can do that just yourself. You can just, you know, that in, in Zen and some Tibetan traditions, probably in many, many traditions, it's just that quality of uh, being a little startled takes one out of one's ordinary mind for a while. You know, so you can do that. You can just, you could, maybe for some it might be music, for some it might be a particular tree or something. And you're, you're to find, find ways to go to that quality of uh, openness and mystery and awareness. It's really, it's a way of bringing that retreat quality into the flow of daily life. And it's actually the way to help, you know, the, the aim, the aim of retreat is actually ultimately not to, the ultimate aim is not to have great experiences that one brings home and talks about with friends and neighbors. The ultimate aim of retreat is to eliminate the need for retreat. It's to eliminate the distinction between retreat and non-retreat. That's the ultimate direction. Because if we're dependent on retreat for our wisdom and our big hearts, that's a limitation. Well, that's not good to say this. I should have been at the end of my talk. <laughs> but that's, that's ultimately uh, retreats point beyond themselves. And the real challenge, when, especially you know, for many of us, ret- doing a retreat or two <coughs> is really a wonderful next step short retreat, a day or two. Most of our retreats are, that we start with are three or five or seven days, or not two weeks or longer. Start with a short retreat. For some of us, that's really a next step, and it can open up some of these vistas. And for others of us, it's doing more retreats. And for some of us, one of the real edges is bringing the lessons of retreat into daily life in a, more, in a way so that they are more and more alive. And so that distinction... Uh, between amazing sometimes retreats and daily life, which isn't always so amazing, that distinction gets less. You know, and ultimately, everything we've been talking about, the focus, the concentration, the sense of meaning, the deepening of awareness, all of this uh, gets more and more stabilized in our everyday ordinary lives. And that's the aim of all of this. So let's just sit uh, for a moment and I'll invite us to reflect on what may have been helpful from the morning. Maybe something from the talk, the discussion, or it may have been something that just came up for you that sparked you in your meditation or afterwards that had nothing to do with the talk at all. That might have been what is most important for you. So what's most important from the 
talk in the morning be present to you. And also see if there are any intentions, maybe one or maybe two intentions which come out of the morning. So invite those two, uh, two reflections. We, we end by reflecting that we practice for ourselves, we practice for each other, and ultimately we practice for all beings, without exception. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.